Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, I'm Colin Ellis. Welcome to our show on Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. This week's episode is going to sound a little different. Last month, we joined forces with the Toronto Real Asian International Film Festival to record a live episode with filmmaker Min Suk Lee. We were there to discuss her work as an activist and documentary filmmaker. Min Suk is a friend of TVO. Her last film was called Migrant Dreams, a TVO original documentary about migrant workers in Leamington, Ontario. She's also made films about family reunification in South Korea, toxic baby products, and police oversight in Toronto. It's fair to say that activism and documentaries are two strong themes in her filmmaking career. Real Asian chose Min Suk for a career retrospective, and she chose her film Hogtown, The Politics of Policing, which is a look at Toronto City Hall in 2004. This was a troubled year for the Toronto Police Services Board, and Min Suk got unprecedented access to some of the inner workings of City Council. Clips of her doc went viral years later, which we get into. So, what makes Hogtown worth revisiting? It really is sobering to look at the Toronto Police Services Board, because that is a civilian um, body that's policing the police. And I think that's a salient question with this documentary that's still relevant today. Who's policing the police? We also talk about the challenges of finding your creative voice as a marginalized person. I think when you grow up being stereotyped or being constrained by existing narratives of who you are according to your gender, your race, your sexuality, you know, your own capacity to realize who you might be becomes quite diminished. So yes, expect some real talk on docs coming up. And just a warning, this episode contains some strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Min Suk, thank you so much for speaking with me tonight uh, about your film Hogtown and about your career. Uh, we actually met a couple years ago uh, at TVO. She was uh, uh, there to uh, discuss her film, her last film, Migrant Dreams, and so it's great to meet you again tonight. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll just start uh, by saying, you know, you, you said you hadn't seen this film in, I guess, quite a few years, yeah. and it came out in 2005. What's it like to uh, revisit it now? It's quite sobering to think that city politics hasn't changed very much. In fact, it's gotten more consolidated in terms of um, ideological positions being really cemented on council floor. And um, we want to see city council as a site of active democracy, active civic engagement and participation. And that's why I wanted to do this documentary. I was really interested in how do we activate democracy? How do we, as ordinary residents of the city, take control of the political system? And uh, how do we flex our own political muscle? How do we engage in um, citizen power? So that's, I thought, City Hall, spending a year at City Hall, watching how council dealt with issues would give me a window into that. And watching it um, now, you know, over a decade plus afterwards, It really is sobering to look at the Toronto Police Services Board because that is a civilian um, body that's policing the police. And I think that's a salient question with this documentary that's still relevant today. Who's policing the police? 2003 and 2004 were rough years for the Toronto Police and the Independent Board that oversees it. 
There was a lot of drama and fighting, especially over the police budget. And when the board didn't renew former police chief Julian Fantino's contract, people actually took to the streets. City council was divided. So, yeah, major drama. And it's the Toronto Police Services Board that is tasked to police the police, to govern policing, to you know, oversee the civilian body you know, tasked with overseeing policing. If their own members are uh, suggesting you know, that they, putting forward allegations that they are being surveilled, that um, their offices are being bugged, that uh, they're, um, well, one member, as you saw, Alan Heisey, the chair of the Police Services Board, his entire reputation was shredded and smeared. Um, and you're not talking about, you know, radical left-wing lunatics who want a Trotskyite revolution at City Hall. I'm talking about people who have been appointed by the mayor and the provincial system to enact what is essentially democracy. And if those members are unable to do so, then I think you know, there's some serious questions we have about how, and how close we are to democratic power as you know, ordinary citizens. So watching it today, I think many of those pressing questions remain. Um, we are looking at you know, more of a public conversation around racial profiling, around police accountability, but I think some of those salient questions uh, remain with the Toronto Police Services Board. Just notice there's a cat behind you. I don't know why, but it's very cute, and I just wanted to point that out. Hello, kitty. Um, there is a scene that uh, went viral from this film right. uh, many years after it was shot. It's uh, obviously the exchange between Rob Ford and Giorgio Mammoliti with uh, a Globe and Mail reporter. Why don't you just call him a fat fuck? Yeah, why do you call him a fat fuck? You did. You did. You said that. You did that. Why did you? I just heard you. That's right. You heard it, okay? What did you say? What did you just say? You just called him a fat fuck. You called me a fat fuck. Why did you call him a fat fuck? First, what was it like to have shot that? And also, what is it like to watch it have this second life during uh, Rob Ford's mayoralty? Well, I, you know, it's quite stunning because when Rob Ford was um, a city councillor for um, the, the, the length of time that he was in council, he was such an outlier. He was really re considered a buffoon who um, would take these extreme positions that no, no, nobody would take him seriously. To imagine, fast forward many years later, that he would actually be mayor of the city is, is, is just... It was so unbelievable to me that uh, our politics would shift so drastically into this um, populist right-wing um, positioning. And at the time, you know, the kinds of antics that he would generate at City Hall were so brazen, but also really, you know, yes, they're funny, but such a mockery of democracy completely no interest in the democratic process. Most of the time, he wasn't at city council. I was interested in, in him as a character. I thought he was fascinating because he was such an outsized character. But, um, you know, I spent a year at City Hall, and I wanted to pay attention to who was actually attending city uh, police services board meetings, who was, you know, part of the process. He was never there. He was disinterested in, in the political process altogether. And then at council meetings there, he was grandstanding with really ignorant positions. So watching, um, you know, when he was mayor and watching that scene have a second life, um, it was actually quite depressing to think that um, something that had been really unthinkable at the time, that someone who 
cast himself, uh, he really cast himself as um, against almost all of what city council stood for. No matter how center or left or even right you were, he denounced the council process. And he thought privatization of how we manage the city was the best way forward. Um, so, you know, he would put himself forward as saying, I'm $4 forward. I, I want a budget of just $4 to do my job as a city, city councillor. Well, essentially, he clearly believes that there's no job to be done as a city councillor. Allow corporations uh, to manage count, you know, council and city business altogether. So watching uh, his antics on screen, you know, really put forward to me um, how far we can normalize radicalism, you know, radical right-wing positions, right? It's, that's now the new normal at city council. You said that. You said that right Why are you running, Barbara? Why are you running, Barbara? Gentlemen, gentlemen. Rob, come on. Rob, forget it. That's what you should You chose to call the film Hogtown, uh, the politics of policing. Um, why did you choose that title, and what was the reaction uh, of the people uh, who are in the film uh, to that title? The dog had a working title, City State, and I was interested in um, how Toronto is the biggest city, the biggest gov municipal government in Canada, really operated in many ways, you know, as a city state. Um, but as I was shooting, and the police services board uh, became the central issue, because when I started shooting, I thought actually I might be looking at garbage and how the city managed waste disposal. Um, I wasn't sure what issue would come forward at council. I just knew I wanted to spend a year at council looking at the life of uh, municipal politics. Um, and then when policing became the central issue, um, you know, a lot of questions came forward to me about what kind of legacies are being held at council. How is council in many ways still very much dominated by a colonial culture? Um, you know, if you look back at the you know, mid-1800s, you have the family compact, which was this elite uh, that ran the city, the, city, the city's interest, and they were the ones who controlled the economic, cultural, and political systems in the old city of Toronto. And how much has that changed? Um, in what ways has dynastic power been perpetuated in City Hall? So referencing the old name of Toronto Hogtown was speaking about those interests being still vested and anchored. And at the same time, I know that there was a certain thought around um, policing and some of the cultural you know, references to police um, and, um, you know, how people will say, well, police are pigs, right? So I wanted to reference that. But really more specifically, I was looking at the history of Toronto and how historically power has always remained and still remains in the hands of um, this, uh, a very central core few. Well, I want to move beyond uh, Hogtown because you've made a, a lot of films from various subjects. I mean, obviously policing, uh, but you've also done films on migrant worker rights, uh, you've looked at family, family reunification in North and South Korea. Um, would you say there's a thread that ties all these films together? Hmm. I think a few. Um, I'm very interested in power. How is, um, how is power exercised? And where there's power, there's always resistance. So I am interested in looking at that narrative and that relationship. And how do people uh, seize power, or how do they resist? How do they challenge power? 
uh, whether it's in um, you know, a national story of division as in Korea, or whether it's in local politics as in Toronto. I think at the same time, I'm interested in the human consequences um, or how people live through the implications of power and how power um, affects our lives on a day-to-day -day level. And um, I think those two pieces, yeah. Where does that interest in, in exploring power come from? I have to believe that we can change things. I have to believe that um, when we look out at the world right now, and we consider some of the social material realities of the world, that the status quo is not acceptable and that it won't necessarily be the status quo tomorrow. And in order to work towards realizing any kind of transformation of what is accepted as you know, um, normal today, I think you have to investigate how power is um, reproduced and how power holds on to itself. When you started out as a filmmaker, were there any, anyone in particular or any filmmakers or, or activists that you were sort of looking, for, looking at and said, I want to do what they're doing or beyond what they're doing? Yeah, quite a few, quite a few, but maybe um, closer to home. You know, what was much more um, tangible for me because I'm a working class Korean immigrant. And, um, you know, growing up in Toronto, I didn't really see a lot of people like me working behind the camera or even in front. Uh, but I was more interested in telling stories behind the camera. And I knew that storytelling was really powerful because I could see the impact of not having your story told or being erased from uh, the story altogether. And I knew I'd much rather be able to tell my story so that I could control you know, um, the future. And I was lucky as a teenager to meet a few activists, artists in the city um, who were part of a woman of color collective. And there was a singer, there is a singer, Faith Nolan, poet Dion Brand, and the painter Grace Channer. And they were part of the Black Women's Collective, and they were really supportive of, when I met them, they were really supportive of the kind of um, interest I had in social change. And they saw me. They saw me in a way that I knew I'd never been seen generally. I think when you grow up, oftentimes being stereotyped or being dismissed or being constrained by existing narratives of who you are according to your gender, your race, your sexuality, then um, you know, your own capacity to realize who you might be, you know, that becomes quite diminished. And you feel invisibilized, not just to society, but even to yourself. And trying to find a sense of voice was really important to me. So um, ultimately working in documentary is, uh, and working in you know, creative art practices amidst community members was a matter of survival. It was, it was very much a matter of, um, I, don't, I don't know that I would have made it, frankly, um, if I hadn't been able to meet artists, activists, 
who were using um, their own music, poetry, painting as a way to express themselves, as a way to um, reject the narratives that were told about their stories and their lives, and as a way to propose alternatives. Um, because I think I'm like many other uh, racialized first-generation immigrants who grow up just trying to find um, themselves in, in the reality around them. Um, and, you know, all of those challenges can really sh uh, silence your voice. Do you consider yourself, I guess, a filmmaker first or like an activist first or do they kind of blend with each other? Mm -hmm, I don't know. I think the, um, that's a difficult one to answer. I, I think I'm a political filmmaker would be the best answer. I'm interested in uh, political issues and my stories investigate that and do so with um, a political voice. Mm -hmm. As journalists, we have to... Uh, reconcile with or deal with ethics obviously we have to there's usually a, an industry standard of uh, or codes of conduct when we tell our stories I'm wondering if a similar code of conduct um, uh, if there's a similar code of conduct for documentary filmmakers mm -hmm. there's not not that I know of I don't think there's an official one I think documentary filmmakers self-police themselves um, and I think what they do is oftentimes default to a principle of, you know, do no harm. Uh, but in terms of some international body monitoring uh, how documentary filmmakers, you know, make our films, I don't, I don't know of one that, you know, formally exists or, or authorizes documentaries have got some sort of stamp of approval. And I think that's... That's sort of the gray area that is really important to consider. What were the conversations that happened before the camera started shooting? Um, and what happened, you know, once the cameras were off? I think documentaries are very much relationships on screen. What you're watching, when you're watching these scenes, is a product of many conversations I've had um, with Pat McConnell, John Fillion, Alan Heisey, and uh, Hogtown is very much a story about access. They trusted me. And they trusted that I would stay with a story, uh, not run away with it uh, the way you, know, you might need to with Spot News, um, but stay with the story and give it the kind of context that it warranted. And I think as documentary filmmakers, we have this, we have the capacity to approach some serious questions with that kind of depth. Right, that oftentimes uh, spot news, daily news, just doesn't have, uh, can't really, within its own system, the way it's um, engineered. And, um, you know, that's, that's a deep privilege, but it's a deep responsibility. You know, as you can see in the documentary, there are many times where I was the only camera in the room, um, you know, given permission from police services board members. Uh, either I was given permission or I was the only one that stayed, you know, it's a, dur it's a durational kind of process. So I, I would be there in the 14th hour when all the other dailies had to file for 6 o'clock. Well, I mean, I want to stay on this topic of, um, of access because you did two other films uh, that I think required you to have uh, re really important access. One was El Contrato and the other was Migrant Dreams. And could you just tell, us, tell everyone just what those films were about and how you were able to uh, get access to these uh, migrant workers? At the time, I had been working with unions and organizing with unions around uh, labor arts. And 
a friend of mine, Chris Ramsaru, who is an organizer for migrant justice workers. Um, he had organized an information tour uh, to Leamington because workers had gone on a wildcat strike. And he was trying to raise awareness about the situation of migrant workers in Leamington, Ontario. I was interested because I, I knew there were migrant workers in Canada, but I didn't fully appreciate or understand what the situation was. I really thought it was an American issue. I thought it was an American story. I didn't understand or know the depth and extent of how much of our agricultural industry uh, relies on migrant workers. And the uh, program itself that brings migrant workers into Canada um, is such that workers are tied to one employer. So they can't move. If they, um, if they have a job they're not happy with, if they're not treated well, if their living accommodations are um, you know, overcrowded, they cannot, like any of us, if we were not happy with our jobs, they can't move around. So they're stuck, they're indentured, is what we say. They're indentured to one employer, to that job site. Mensuk's first feature-length documentary, El Contrato, followed a group of Mexican migrant workers in Leamington, Ontario. They were having a tough time dealing with their employers and the shoddy living conditions of the farms they were working on. When they make complaints about their housing, working conditions, and abusive employer, they only have a couple of options. One is to go to the employer who's causing the problem to begin with. The second is the Mexican consulate. And what we've found is that the consulate is there to protect the contract with the grower uh, and provides very little service to, to the individual worker. She returned to the topic and to Leamington over a decade later to cover a group of women from Indonesia. They'd been hired by brokers who were illegally charging them recruitment fees, debts they could barely hope to pay back. That documentary was Migrant Dreams. So approaching migrant workers um, is difficult because... Speaking out is often uh, means then you're kicked out of the program and you lo lose your livelihood. And what I did with migrant workers was, again, you know, spend a lot of time building relationships before I even started shooting and telling them that this is f in many ways an opportunity to share their story, um, to hopefully realize more awareness and change. And I think, I have to say, I think migrant workers that I've worked with um, trusted me because I was working with activists uh, who had been organizing with them for, for years. But uh, they also recognized that documentary is fundamentally a powerful tool for social change. And some... I think for some workers it was, you know, what do I have to lose at this point? Because I was talking to workers who were in situations where they were being exposed to pesticides. In El Contrato, there was one worker who lost um, vision in one eye because he was sprayed with pesticides. And, um, you know, the system itself, there was so little recourse, and there still is so little recourse for uh, putting forward a complaint of you know, advocating for your rights, that the documentary is an absolute concrete tool um, for social change in the hands of migrant workers. You know, your eight, I guess your eighth feature-length documentary is into your career now. Um, how do you decide what issues to take on next, keeping in mind that you, you're trying to create social change? Like, what do you decide to do next uh, with, your, with your next film? Well, I don't know that I sit there with, um, I mean, it's not an, auto how do, it's very organic. 
it's very much reflective of um, the communities and the relationships I have. And um, I certainly don't parachute myself in um, and then decide, okay, this is now the issue that I'm very interested in. I mean, it, it has to feel like there's actually um, meaningful stakes um, that's re reciprocal for myself and communities that I might be shooting with. Um, so there's many ways uh, a story, you know, becomes sort of mobilized to be the project that I can work on. It's timing, it's funding, it's um, communities that I'm, you know, working with. So it's, um, yeah, it's not a really straightforward answer to that. Is there an issue that, uh, I mean, we've talked about policing tonight, we've talked about migrant workers, but is there something that you're, you're kind of keeping an eye on that you'd want to look, at, look into more? Currently, I'm really interested in Korea, you know, North and South Korea. I'm Korean-born. Um, I think Korean reunification is long overdue. Um, the division of Korea has impacted my family, you know. Um, it's deeply part of my story. And yet, what I'm aware of is the independence of Korea is so compromised by the interests of Japan, China, USSR, USA. So an independent Korea, um, which I believe is something I would love to see in my lifetime, I think it's, you know, we is achievable. And yet it's in so many ways uh, not Korea's decision. So um, I've been trying to find a way to tell that story, but also to tell it um, in, a, in a really, with a broader historical sweep. And I think that's challenging. You know, every project, I think, has its own form of storytelling. So Hogtown is, I set out to make a verite documentary. I wanted very much to have the drama unfold in front of the camera. El Contrato was a much more traditional standard television documentary with narration and, and um, interviews, set up interviews and such. Every project um, has its own form for me that, that makes sense to the story that's in it. Uh, thank you so much to Min Suk. Thank you to Real Asian Film Festival and uh, thank you all for joining us tonight. And that's the podcast. Join us next week for a talk with filmmaker Nadine Pequenisa on another TVO collaboration launching this winter. Liked what you heard? Tell us why by giving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Better yet, tell a friend. Word of mouth is a great way to spread the word about the pod. You can also write us an email at ondocs at tvo.org. We do read them. Or follow me on Twitter at colinellis81 for news about the podcast and my random musings on pop culture. Thanks to producers Chantal Braganza and Matthew O'Mara. And big shout out to our production coordinator, Caitlin Plummer, who is leaving TVO for a brand new job. Thank you so much for all your hard work on this podcast and on the Agenda on Politics podcast and everything else you've done for us here at TVO, Caitlin. We'll really miss you. Our podcast manager is Hannah Sung. Big thanks to Kelly and Christine, a real Asian, and the people at TVO behind the scenes who make this show possible. We'll catch you at the next screening. Mm -hmm.